you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. I'm excited to be able to speak to you from God's Word in this wonderful little epistle that Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians. And while you're finding your way there, I do uh, want to uh, echo some of the comments that Cody already made for us this morning concerning our Lord's Supper. It's been, I think, about six months uh, since uh, I last have taken the Lord's Supper, and perhaps the longest time I've ever gone uh, without taking the Lord's Supper, so I'm delighted to be able to do so uh, this morning, and yet it's with a heavy heart that, that the elders of the church do ask those who are live streaming not to participate in the Lord's Supper with us this morning. We do that because we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, which is really the only description in the Bible concerning in great detail the Lord's Supper, that no less than five times does the Apostle Paul mention that they take the Lord's Supper when the church is gathered. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 18, he actually says when, when, the, when the church is gathered as a church. In other words, the Lord's Supper is an, a sacrament given to us only when we are gathered together as one. This is, this is why I never serve my family the Lord's Supper, for instance, because we are not the church. And it's why I never serve my community group the Lord's Supper, because we are not the church, though maybe a slice of it, not the, the whole church gathered together. So I think Scripture teaches us that the Lord's Supper is the family meal, and we eat it when we all gather together as a family, unified and feasting with one another. And so we're, we, we're excited to take it this morning, and yet I think I probably speak for all those who are here, to you who are watching via our live stream, that there is some sadness in our heart, knowing that perhaps two-thirds of this church uh, cannot meet together because of this pandemic. And of course, we, we long for the day in which we all can gather together freely. We long for the day in which we can worship together. We long for the day in which we can feast together as one church. And so I, I, I do hope that you understand the spirit that these instructions come with. And I, we further hope that even as you might, might watch us take the Lord's Supper as we're gathered here as the church, it would create in your heart just a greater longing for that day in which we can all be gathered together. And then when we are gathered and when we do feast together, all of us, unhindered, uh, what joy that day will bring. And so I hope you understand um, our instructions and receive them as they're intended. And so now, uh, if you found your way to 2 Thessalonians, I'm delighted to be able to share with you God's word, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, hear now the word of God. This is evidence of God's righteous, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the, of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Our Father in heaven, 
we're thankful that we might be able to consider these wonderful truths of future glory. We ask, according to your kindness, through your word and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would hold out for your people a great and triumphant hope, and that in that hope, we might find great strength to live for this day, as we look for this great day to come. Do this great work as you honor and glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's in uh, Leo Tolstoy's famous uh, novel, War and Peace, that he introduces his readers to a a lovely and charming young lady named Natasha. And Natasha uh, quickly wins your heart if you've ever read the book, and you're, you're drawn towards her, and you begin to root for her, and so you're delighted one day when Natasha is introduced to a noble and upright man named Andre. And Andre, by the way, happens to be a prince. They soon fall in love and are betrothed to be married, but because Natasha is not yet of age, they have to wait a year for that marriage. And so there Natasha waits for 365 days for her prince to come to take her as his bride. And yet on the night before they're married, a despicable fellow shows up, Anatole. He's a charmer and a terrible man. And on day 364 of her 365 days of waiting, he wins Natasha's heart. He lures her away, though he himself is already married, and they agree to sneak away that evening and elope. And of course, you could imagine the misery that follows this woman for the rest of her days because of that decision. Of course, many have pointed to Tolstoy's writings and seen Christian themes in them. Here, I think it's obvious to us, isn't it, that you have a bride waiting for her prince, and even while that happens, a deceiver will come while she waits and attempts to woo her away. I think that's in many ways the story of our lives and the lives of Christians who have gone before us, that we often are, are given into the temptation that our enemy brings to us. We are often persuaded away from what is truly best for us when what the scripture calls for us to do, God in his grace demands of us that we are to wait, and while we wait for him to come, we are to remain faithful, knowing that his coming will be glorious and marvelous. You see, the Christian life is designed to look two directions. We look to the past, and we rejoice in God's grace through Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we look to the future and anticipate God's glory in the appearance of Jesus Christ. So we're looking in the past and find great gratitude. We look to the future and find great hope. And because of past gratitude and future hope, we find strength for the present. And so many have called this the push and the pull of the Christian life, pushed by grace from behind, pulled by hope out ahead, and we need both. Now, I think we're up pretty good at looking in the past. Right? We're, we're going to do so, certainly, in the Lord's Supper, aren't we, as we consider the, the broken body and spilled blood of our Lord. We look back to the cross. But my question for you, Christian, are you equally shaped by your destination? Are you, like Paul has exhorted us to in this, the book of Titus, waiting for that blessed hope. Are you waiting? Not, not every second do you think about Christ's return. I mean, even those of you who are in love with your sweethearts don't think about her every, every second of the day, but your mind does frequently go to her, doesn't it? Or to him. 
I wonder, does your mind go on a frequent basis to the reality that Christ will return in the midst of chaos, persecution, pandemics, unemployment, health issues, a presidential election? Do you think and hope and desire for Christ to return? I think you need to think about that. I would suggest to you, according to Scripture, if you do not, you are missing out on a great reservoir of strength that God intends for you to draw from in order to live a life of godliness in the midst of this present age. You will find strength there to be faithful, to stand firm. There is a reason why this hope is held out to us over and over and over again in Scripture. It is precisely because we need it. And so I ask you, do you want greater endurance in your difficulties? Do you want greater joy when your plans are changed? Do you want more boldness in the face of opposition? You need this hope. Of course, this is the hope that Paul is offering to the Thessalonian uh, Christians. You remember, according to verse 4, we saw already that they are opposed. For Paul says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you for your steadfastness and faith. Right? Why? in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. And so this church is being terribly afflicted in the midst of suffering, of course, raising the question, why are we suffering so much? Paul then seeks to answer that question in two ways. He says, well, you need to understand that you're suffering because God is purifying you through that. He is blowing away the chaff of sin in order to make you godly. We see this in verse 5 when he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And yet Paul goes on to explain their suffering, not simply in terms of their purification, but he then points them to the future and points us to the future this morning and says we need to think about Christ's return in light of our suffering. In fact, we know that Christ will do two things when he returns. It's read to us. I don't know if you picked it up in the book of Malachi. Well, Paul will tell us as well. In verse 6, he says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So God will come in judgment on, on those who stand in opposition to his people. But he will do more than that, won't he, as we see in verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So Christ is coming to grant relief. And Paul points these suffering Christians to that relief. He says, don't miss it in light of uh, your troubling circumstances. Don't get so preoccupied with the difficulties in which you're enduring that you forget to realize that Christ is coming. And that, therefore, you need to consider all of life in this world of woe that we live in in light of the reality of this great and glorious day of Jesus' victorious unveiling. Do you? Because I feel like we are tempted to think, maybe I'm alone, man, it's been 2,000 years. He's still not here. And we tempt us to put it back on the back burner. I think we, we think of the return of Christ in the same way that we think about the possibility of the Orioles winning the World Series. Right? 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 It's possible. Right? It might happen in my lifetime, but I doubt it. Is that not how we think about this? Yeah, it could happen, but I certainly doubt it's going to happen in our life. Well, Paul points them to it, a Christian's living 2,000 years ago, mind you, and says, you need to focus on this. The New Testament, in fact, continually exhorts us to do so. This is a, a vital promise that must be cherished and trusted 
As we read in the book of Acts in chapter 1, Jesus will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Or Philippians 3 and verse 20, Paul will write, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Colossians 3, 4, when we read, When Christ, who is your life, appears. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Or 1 Timothy 6, 14, Keep the commandment unstained until the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 1, I charge you by his return. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ will appear a second time. James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. 2 Peter 3, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall see him, for we shall be like him. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And we see in our passage here, do we not? In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. I tell you, the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again, he is returning. It does not do so so that you might forget it. It does so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we might live in light of it. I know what a strange view this must be in light of the humanistic world that we live in this western hemisphere. Of course, most of your neighbors, their hope is not in the return of Christ. Their hope is found in the unfolding greatness of human progress. I would just simply ask them, how's that going for you? Because it doesn't seem like we're making much headway. The Bible instead announces a sudden and violent end to this world in which all will give an account before their creator. God will settle accounts. There'll be mercy for some, justice for others. Perhaps you heard the story of the two farmers, one a Christian and one an atheist. When it came time for the harvest, the atheist brought in a rich and bountiful harvest. The Christian's was parse and scarce. The atheist then mocked the Christian, saying that apparently it doesn't pay to serve God. The Christian responded, you must remember that God doesn't always settle accounts in October. He will settle accounts but not on our timeline. And last week, we considered that, didn't we? Settling of accounts in light of judgment. We considered in detail Paul's teaching on the retribution that God will bring. Today, I'm delighted to be able to speak to you of what Christ will bring for us who believe. Namely, he will bring rest, renewal, and rejoicing. Rest, renewal, and rejoicing. You might want to think of it this way, this outline. What will we lose? What will we gain? And what will we do? Rest, renewal, and rejoicing. Consider, first of all, the rest that Christ will bring. We're told there in verse 7, as we've already seen, and, and when he he'll grant relief to those, uh, to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So these suffering and afflicted Thessalonians are told that your suffering will not endure forever, that a rest is coming for you. We saw in verse 6, the afflictors will be repaid with affliction. And now those who are being afflicted, they will be repaid with rest. And this is not just for the Thessalonian Christians. Paul hastens to include himself, doesn't he? He says, uh, there, uh, as well as to us, you note, he adds. So this is a rest that all Christians will uh, enjoy. You know, we endure hardship in this life, don't we? We, we, we endure affliction in self-denial. I think what's great strength then these truths here before us would have for them and indeed for us to hold on, to persevere, to, to uh, endure this life. So I, I don't know if, are you weary? Are some of you weary today? I wonder, are some of you worn out 
today? I wonder if you feel like the world is wearing you down. Moms, you ever feel weary of the daily duties and concerns and struggles of the calling that God has placed upon your life? Dads, you ever feel weary as you struggle to face another day of toil? Life at times is wearisome. And we talk about in our home that uh, we, we want, to, the language we use in our home is that we want to exhaust ourselves for the king and for his kingdom. And we try to communicate both to our own hearts and to that of our children that life is not about maximizing ease and comfort. That life is in very much about serving the king, which often requires sacrifice, even voluntary suffering, in order to serve the purposes of his kingdom. Life is not about uh, fluffing our bed. Life is about giving. Life is about self-denial. Life is about sacrificing for the king, exhausting ourselves for the king and his kingdom. Well, you know, that life is exhausting, isn't it? Uh, you know, there are, there are troubles. There are sorrows that life brings upon us, and at times they feel uh, never-ending. Some of you are, are very well acquainted with this. Some of you understand the, the unending waves of misery and hardship and bad news that just continually, one after another, seems to crash upon your head, and you can't find your footing at all. And of course, beyond this, we all have this struggle, not simply with the world, but the struggle within ourselves the flesh that we fight against, the sinful tendencies that, that remain within us. And I think what we often hope in is one day these troubles will be gone. We, that is, we think, I just need to get to the next stage of life, and then everything will, will be okay. I need to get through this disease, and everything will be okay. Then I'll get rest. I need to get through this degree, and then I'll get rest. I need to get through this debt, and, and then I'll get rest, only to discover that once you're through it, the race continues and that there are no, new opponents who stand up and take the fight against you. Well, I'll tell you, according to the Bible, that when Christ returns, he will defeat finally and forever all your opponents. He will eradicate your flesh, he will cure your diseases, he will end your suffering, he will remove your concerns and stop your toil, he will give you rest. The exams will be over, the vacation will begin. Right? We will in many ways return to the garden, to a place called paradise. Is that what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Why is it paradise? Because it's with Jesus. Remember in Eden, the place of paradise, of course, was, was a place of beauty and joy and power and glory and life and abundance and laughter and pleasure. Why? Because God was there. That's where his presence was. And there was nothing dead or diseased. There was nothing evil or fallen, twisted or unclean. There was nothing harmful or hurtful there amidst God's presence. And then after our forefathers rebelled against him, God withdraws. And what, what remains? What brokenness? What we find there is sickness and hunger and violence and poverty and injustice and death and affliction and weakness. That's what remains. And every once in a while when we read the scripture, we see God's presence kind of breaking in in a special way. I think that's what the promised land was to picture. The promised land was just a, a pointer to what the new world will be like when uh, God's presence returns, a place of longevity and peace and uh, prosperity and joy and so forth. And then even when Jesus was here, does, wherever Jesus went, the promised land went with him, if you will. And he healed diseases and forgave sinners and set people's life back on course. I mean, he was showing what life uh, in abundance looks like. Well, I tell you, when Christ returns, he, he brings with him the presence of God because he is, of course, the very son of God. And he will make the world a paradise again. 
And you shall say an eternal farewell to sickness and sorrow, to trial and temptation, to disease and death, and you will receive rest. You will receive relief. You long for that. Of course, you don't have to wait. Right? You don't have to wait for it. You can experience a foretaste of that relief even now. For did not Christ say when he walked upon this earth, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christian, that's what he offers you even now. That you know something of that rest, and you know something of the peace that accompanies this. You, you have an appetizer, if you will, of the final rest to come, and so draw near to the Lord and place your troubles upon him as he invites you to do so as you wait for his return, wait for that glorious rest. Of course, his return is not simply going to bring the absence of pain and toil. I mean, Jesus himself, when he spoke about this great day, said, I will say such things as enter into the joy of your master, or your reward in heaven is great. And so when we think about Christ's return, we simply don't think about the troubling realities we lose, but the glory that we gain, or we might call it, secondly, a renewal, a renewal. Now, we're going to have to skip here uh, verses 8 and 9, which we considered at length last time. Paul turns back to the doctrine of judgment. And then it's here in verse 10 that he finally returns to the glory that is going to come, this re great renewal, when he says there, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Now, I find that a very fascinating statement because, well, let me ask you this. Will, will God, will Jesus be glorified by his people when he comes? The answer is yes, he will. Okay. But that's not what this verse says. Now read it very carefully. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Not among his saints. Not by his saints. But in his saints. In other words, what scripture is teaching us is that his glory will be revealed in you and in me. In us that we will be the instruments by which his glory is displayed. In fact, Paul returns to this in verse 12 when he says, so that the name of Jesus might be glorified in you and, and, and you in him. There's, there's going to be a glory of God taking place within me. And so don't think of the return of Christ as like you're, you're at a rock concert, right? And the audience is all gathered there and someone backstage begins to play the guitar and the kind of the, the musical momentum begins to build and then the band comes out and then finally the, the light goes up into the rafters and there's the front man descending down and all the crowd goes wild, right? Is that what the return of Christ will be like? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Nor is he saying, as some suggest, we'll all be mirrors and, and the glory of Christ will be so radiant that it will reflect off us and we'll begin to reflect the glory to one another. In fact, I think John Stott is right when he says the metaphor that we should draw is that we will all be in many ways like light bulbs. That is, we will be changed as his glory shines in us and through us. Listen to what Stott says. The distinction between these models is important. A theater is not changed by the play which is performed in it. A mirror is certainly not affected by the images it reflects, but a filament is changed. For when the current is switched on, it becomes incandescent. So when Jesus is revealed in his glory, he will be glorified in his people. We will not only see, but share his glory. We will be radically and permanently changed, transformed into his likeness, and in our transformation, his glory will be seen. So I tell you, Christians, you, on that day, you are going to share in the very glory of Christ, 
in the glory of his victory, in the glory of his triumph for unending ages. Perhaps you heard that I think it is in just a matter of days that we will celebrate the 75th anniversary of VJ Day. That is the, the, the final end to World War II. And that end took place uh, a couple weeks later when Douglas, General Douglas MacArthur actually signed the terms of surrender that the Japanese had provided for him. But he didn't sign it alone. Interestingly enough, he insisted that two generals accompany him at this signing ceremony who had both been taken captive by the Japanese and suffered terribly at their hands. And so when he took his pen in order to sign the documents of surrender, he only signed his first name, Douglas. And then he gave the pen to the general on his left, who then signed Mac, who then handed the pen to the other general who signed Arthur. And finally, of course, you have the signature, Douglas MacArthur. You see, he wanted them to share in the glory of this victory even though they were captive the whole time. I mean, I think it'll be something when Christ, like that when Christ returns, that we will likewise share in his victory in the most amazing ways. We will share in the glory that is his and do him alone. I find this utterly stunning and amazing and, and enthralling that Christ's glory will be seen in me and in you. Christ's glory will be admired in you. Christ's glory will be adored in you. Absolute glory is coming to this world and it's coming through us as perfect image bearers, right, who will fill this renewed world and rule over it as God originally instructed. One pastor calls us pathetic excuses for human beings. And we will one day finally and fully be what God actually intended us to be. I think it's like we've been eating bread and water our entire lives. And one day, you know, 40 years into it, someone brings you a steak and a glass of wine and you take it and you say, oh, this is what eating is supposed to be like. I think that's what it will be. One day when we walk upon this new world transformed by the glory of our Lord, we will think, oh, this is what life was supposed to be like and we shall live it in God's glory forever. In fact, John will tell us what we will be has not yet been revealed, yet we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. I think you perhaps can see how this is the direct opposite to those who are facing judgment. Remember we saw in verse 9 that they're, they're cut off from, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, right? They're, they're banished, they're separated. Those of us who are in Christ instead will be brought in even farther. We will be glorified or renewed. They will shrink and shrivel and grow in hatred and sin for all eternity. As one put it, instead of, shining, instead of shining with the glory of Christ, their light will be extinguished in outer darkness. How different will our experience be if hell is a final cutting off of the transforming glory of God? Heaven will be an eternity in sharing in it. I think this, this is beyond anything that we can dream of. I don't even think we could get our minds around how wonderful this will be, that everything that's wrong with us, all the addictions that hold on to us, all the fears that we have of the future, all the physical ailments that steal our ease, it all will be gone. And instead, all it will be will be beauty and wisdom and compassion and holiness, and our desires will be completely satisfied, and our wants will be totally trustworthy. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy walks into the place representing this new earth and she says, 
famously, I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Everything's allowed because our wants are totally trustworthy. As one put it, we will be like priests living in the temple, like a bride joined together with her husband, like children united with their father, like the heirs of a king enjoying their inheritance with him, like participants in the banquet of all banquets. The transformation is coming. Renewal is coming for you, Christian. Put your hope in that. And of course, when we think about Christ's return, we think not simply about what, what will happen in us. We think not about the, simply the rest in which we will get, be given to us. We think about being in his presence and rejoicing with him and about him in light of him. And so we turn thirdly, and perhaps uh, the greatest point that Paul gives us is he tells us on this great day we will rejoice. What will we do? Well, part of what we'll do, we'll rejoice, for he tells us in verse 10, does he not? If you read on, he says that he comes to be marveled at, to be marveled at. Right? We long for Jesus. We long to be in his presence that we might marvel at him. I was talking to my kids last night and said, what are things you marvel at? Right? And, and uh, they talked about family and they, they talked about uh, scenery that we've seen. Being on, you, you've marveled, right? Being on the top of a mountain or, or, or standing at the vast expanse of an ocean or, or, or seeing a storm coming in. M- most of us men can remember the day we marveled when our bride walked down that aisle and our hearts marveled, right? We, we, we marveled in 1981 when Kirk Gibson hit that walk-off home run in, ni- in the first game of the World Series against the Oakland Athletics, right? We all marvel. We remember that. I could carry that day with us, uh, you know, uh, decades later. We, some of our greatest experiences are marveling. I think, I, in fact, I think marveling is perhaps one of the greatest emotions God gives us. Do you love to marvel? Do you wish you marveled more? Right? Marveling is incredible. Well, one day... All your trials will stop, and all your sin will vanish, and all your questions will disappear, and all your doubts will recede, and all the temptations will menace you no more, and all the suffering will end, and all the hatred and bitterness in your heart will be gone, and you will wonder, how can this be? And then you will turn and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you will marvel. Perhaps it will be something like during the Vietnam War when the POWs were finally released. And you've seen the imagery there, the wife waiting on the dock, six years of praying, six years of hoping, six years of dreaming that one day her husband might be alive and she might see him. And of course, then they finally meet on that dock and there's embracing and there's weeping and there's, there's kissing and there's hugging and there's crying. I think it's gonna be something like that only 10,000 times greater. On that great day when Christ is revealed and we will see the limitless power he has in defeating his enemies, the impeccable justice in righting every wrong, the measureless love that he would die for us, the unimpeachable authority, his incomparable incomparable beauty, his unfading integrity, his unerring wisdom, his unstained righteousness. We shall see his blinding radiance, his surpassing beauty. He is before us the unending, unbeginning alpha and the omega, the ruler of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who died and behold now lives and shall I'll live forevermore, and on that day you will marvel. 
You will marvel with hundreds of millions of saints from every tongue and every tribe and every language and every nation, and you shall sing with all of them and the hosts of heaven and the mountains and the trees and the seas and the rocks. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive might and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and power, and you will marvel. And all the baubles in your life that capture your heart today shall on that day be seen as the ridiculous things they are. And all the idols that tempt you today shall be dethroned. And all the pleasures of sin that besiege you today shall be finally unmasked as the counterfeits they are. And it will be marvelous beyond compare. And I say with love in my heart, if you don't have that hope, then I pity you. For you were made for it. You're made for Christ. And if you are not a Christian here today or watching on our live stream, may I, may I beseech you, you certainly know a Christian. Well, can you just ask that Christian that you know, can you give me five minutes and I want you to tell me the hope that you have in Jesus. What do you have to lose? Five minutes. So tell me why you hope in Christ. And then they might share what Christ has done for them through his crucifixion and his soon return. For my Christian brothers and sisters, my question for you is, are you marveling now? Right? I don't think you need to wait for the second coming in order to marvel at Jesus. I mean, he's coming to be marveled at, isn't he? But are you inclined to marvel at Jesus right now? Is there anything marvelous about Christ in your life right now? Do you find him marvelous? Because if all we do is spend time on television and Instagram and, and all the rest and pursue our hobbies and find no time to seek after Jesus, we will not find him marvelous. You have one life that he gives you and, and he intends for you to marvel at him. I think we probably would do well to get after it. That we get after marveling at Christ. And as you marvel in him, you let that hope of his great return change you. I want you to understand that this is incredibly relevant for you. How are you going to get through this world of woe? How are you going to remain steadfast? Well, you go to take a little trip to the future, right? You grab some of that hope and you bring it back to where you are right now. If you remember where you are headed and you let that give you strength and let that give you stability in the midst of the troubles that fall upon you. You see, listen, Christians are not simply the moral people. That's not who we are. We are the people who are at peace in the midst of chaos because of the truths that we believe. We are the people with unshakable hope. So let the stock market do what it's going to do and let, let whatever unjust laws come out of Richmond re restricting our religious freedom or uh, even if a pandemic rages around the world, we are to be unshakable, stable, enduring because our hope is secure. I, I ask you parents, do your children know something of the peace that Christ brings? in the midst of all this chaos. Is your home a place of joy and peace? You need to, if it's not, go to the future, grab some hope, bring it back. Let that hope help you sacrifice as well. Right? We're headed to another home. Well, this is not where we're headed. If all you do is focus on this life, you're just gonna try to fill it with stuff and fill it with stuff and fill it with stuff. You're living in a hotel room, okay? 
For 80 days, you're just going to be there for a little bit. You don't need to fill it with all the extravagance and all this and all that. You're headed for another place. And you might be able to sacrifice and spend your life and even exhaust it for the king. In fact, I think if you marvel, if you truly marveled, this will change who you are. You start marveling now, you'll find yourself transformed. This is one of the reasons why we need, as we talked about last time, the doctrine of hell. Right? We, 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 we see very clearly that Paul teaches that there as amongst other places. I'll tell you, without the doctrine of judgment, you won't marvel. You won't. Listen, if you believe that God loves you and accepts you just the way you are, like most of your neighbors believe, that love will never transform you. Perhaps you've seen the t-shirt that I think somewhat irreverent but captures the uh, truth. It says, God loves you, but then again, he loves everyone else too. Right? Right? I mean, okay, so what? He loves everyone. They're not... They're not amazed at that love. They're not astonished at that love. They're, therefore, they're not transformed by that love. But when you see, as we talked about last time, that we all in our flesh were step, standing at the gaping mouth of hell, and we are just a, an inch or two from plummeting in for all eternity, and Christ, out of his great sacrifice and love for us, came and rescued us from that, and who poured out his love for us at extreme cost to himself, you will begin to marvel at that love, and it will transform you. If there is no judgment from God, then God's love will not do anything in your life. You'll just assume it. God loves me. That's his job. Big deal. What's for dinner? No, it will have no impact in you whatsoever. Right? Every person, go test this theory out. Go, go ask someone, do you think God loves you? Right? And a non-believer, they say, yeah. And then you ask them, how has that love of God transformed your life? And they will look like you like you're speaking a foreign tongue. It has no power in their life. You see, judgment day is good news because without judgment day, grace won't be marvelous. And without it being marvelous, you won't be transformed. Let it transform you. So let, let's just say, for instance, um, you're, you're irritated this afternoon. Okay, you ever get irritated? Yeah, yeah, because people are irritating, right? right? And so you get irritated. How, you should think, well, wait a second. I shouldn't be irritated. I'm supposed to have the peace of God. I'm supposed to be friendly and kind and, and good and the fruit of the Spirit and all the rest. And so how, how, do you, how do you get transformed? Do you give yourself a little pep talk? Come on, Stephen. You're supposed to be at peace. What's wrong with you? Let's do it, right? A little pull up your bootstraps, a little moralism. Let's get after it. How long does that work? That works till the next irritating person comes. Okay. What, if, what if you said, instead, I'm going to marvel at Christ? Have I irritated Christ? Yeah. Yeah, far more than this person has or that person has. How has he treated me? With love and compassion and kindness and goodness and blessing and on and on. Well, if Christ treats me that way, and I, that, is, that is pretty good. I'm marveling at that. You'll find power to actually be trans. Form. What if you're worried this afternoon? How am I going to do this? How are we going to make the bills? What's going to happen at work? You can marvel your worry away. As you gaze, not, not give yourself a little pep talk. I shouldn't be worried. What's wrong with you? No, you gaze at Christ. You say, he would die for me, a sinner. Will he not therefore give me all things that I need? And as I marvel in Jesus, I find the worry melt away and experience his transformation. We need to marvel at Christ to know this and to find this great blessing. My question for you then is, are you marveling today? Are you marveling? Well, you'll only marvel if you have truly escaped the wrath that is coming. 
That is, if you have been forgiven. You say, well, how do I know if I've been forgiven? Well, just finish verse 10. And what does he say there? He comes to be marveled at, well, here it is, ready? All who have believed. If you have believed. We say, believe what? We'll keep going. Because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul came and had a message. That message, they believed it. And because of their faith in that message, well, they one day will marvel at Christ. You might say, well, what was that message? Well, Paul most clearly tells it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he says, I delivered to you what was first importance, what was handed down to me, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That is, Christ went to the cross and paid our penalty, paid my sin debt, took my place, was my substitute, was buried, and rose three days later according to the scripture. And the Bible says if you, that you believe that Jesus has died for your sins as the Savior and risen as the resurrected Lord, that you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I ask all of you here and you uh, who are watching through this live stream, have you yielded to Christ in faith and repentance as Scripture tells us to? For those of us who have, we'll straighten up a bit. Stand up tall in the midst of pandemics and all the rest. I tell you, Christ is coming. And all your troubles will be taken. Your life will be transformed. And you will marvel forever in greater and greater detail at the greater greatness of the Lord. The church will be made worthy through her trials. The enemies of truth will be swept away. The saints will be given everlasting rest. And Jesus will be glorified in us and through us and before us for all eternity. Will you let that truth change you? Let, it, let, it, let, let there be a hope in you that leads to sacrifice. I can sacrifice because of this. That you can forgive because of this hope. That you can have joy because of this hope. That you can have stability because of this hope. For when Christ returns, all your expectations and all your desires and all your dreams and everything will be met only 10,000 times more. So put your hope there. Redemption draws near. Christ is coming. Our Father, we are so thankful for this great truth that you so clearly teach over and over and over again in your word. May it be to us a great source of encouragement even as we face these difficult times, these, this troubling world, as the world goes the direction perhaps that we would not have it go, as, as there, there's trouble all around, let us not cast our gaze simply at our feet and the things in front of us, but let us lift our eyes to see what is coming, to see the victory that will be ours in Jesus. And let that transform us as we marvel at Jesus. And even now, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to marvel as we think about our great Lord, the high King of heaven, breaking his body for us. We think about the creator of all things shedding his blood for us, that we might be his. What could be more marvelous than that? And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.